the subject of wisdom. And I don't come up here, even though I'm older than most of you, as one who has come across as one who's, who's arrived. But I'm ever in process, and probably the most important thing I learned my first semester here was that I have a lot to learn from my younger peers, and I'm very thankful for them. But just yesterday, when I was passing through the Bible office, somebody asked me, so what are you going to preach about? And when I told them it was about wisdom, they said, well, why don't you speak about relationships? And later on, that kind of hit me. I'm thinking about in what way is wisdom relational? Find out that wisdom is relational in that it impacts every aspect of our life. There's different kinds of wisdom. We have wisdom in the way that we deal <clears throat> with people. We have wisdom in the way that we deal with the knowledge in which we accumulate. And we have wisdom with which we apply wisdom to our lives. What I want to speak to you this morning about, we're going to be in James's letter, be in chapter 3. At the time of the New Testament, there were two prevailing schools with regard to the subject of wisdom. That school was that of the Greeks and that of the Jews. To the Greeks, wisdom was very theoretical, was a very theoretical and abstract concept. The primary emphasis of the Greeks was laid upon the intellect, upon the mind. They were masters of creating systems of thought from abstract ideas. To the Greeks, wisdom was the accumulation of knowledge. If you take a look in your Bibles in the book of Acts, chapter 17, you'll see as Paul interacts with some of the Greeks in Athens, it says in Acts 17, verses 19 through 21, and they took him and brought him, that him being Paul, to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I can recall last week at missions conference, at UCLA, there's a part of the campus, it's called Bruin Walk. And basically on Bruin Walk, all there is, at least during the first couple of weeks of school, is they have a set of tables set out. It's pretty much to promote every club that's on campus. And basically at a school where you have 40,000 people that pass through there every day between the faculty and the staff, you see pretty much everything under the sun. So we can pretty much say that the first thing I thought of when I walked down Bruin Walk for the first time was I thought of this passage in Acts and talking about people did nothing but talk about the new thing or listen about the new thing. In Paul's day, he saw Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and likewise, we encounter during missions conference ultra-Orthodox Jewish rabbis, disciples of Louis Farrakhan, and disciples of Sun Young Moon. I think it says in verse 18 that they referred to Paul as just some babbler. And to many of us during missions conference, that is what we appear to be in their eyes. But I also remember what it says in the later part of the passage. They said, we will hear you again. Even the great thinker Socrates, he refused himself to be called wise. For to Socrates, God and God alone was wise. He preferred to refer to himself as a friend or as a lover of wisdom. That word in the Greek, philosophos, that is where we get the word philosopher. 
The second school of thought concerning wisdom was that of the Jews. To the Jews, wisdom had everything to do with the way in which one lived his or her life. It was controlled by the way that God had ordered the laws of the universe and the revelation that God had given to man. To the Jews, wisdom was marked by practical understanding of everyday life and was displayed in both moral and spiritual insight. Look in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 35. And it says concerning wisdom, <clears throat> For he who obtains me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. In the New Testament, that word sophos for wise is used on 19 occasions. In the King James, it's twice used of God only. He's called in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the only wise God. And in Jude verse 25, he's called the only wise God and Savior. The word wise is used in the book of Proverbs 62 times alone. And the word wisdom is used 48 times. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 6, 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes understanding and knowledge. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15 says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom and with all your acquiring get understanding. And finally, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Wisdom was an important thing to the Jewish people. They knew it wasn't enough to have knowledge, but wisdom was necessary to use that knowledge correctly. Today in 1994, in the United States, in this culture that we live in, what would you say, which model concerning the Greeks or the Jews would you say best measures the way in which we view things today? Do we measure wisdom based upon the life of the way one carries himself? Or is wisdom measured in what someone knows and what someone accumulates in their mind? This morning we're going to look at two kinds of wisdom. And that's the wisdom of this world and the wisdom from above. The book of James is often referred to as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. This book was written when the church was still predominantly comprised of Jews. It is possible that those whom James is addressing are believers from the Jerusalem church who were scattered after the death of Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7. This would account for references made concerning trials and oppression. And as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he's writing to instruct and encourage this dispersed group in the face of these difficulties. So turn with me this morning to the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, 
There is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you alone are wise, that you are the only wise God and Savior. And Lord, I thank you that you have imparted a measure of wisdom to us. Lord, we thank you for what the hymn said this morning, that you've ransomed us from the fall. And Lord, I just pray this morning that your word will be proclaimed accurately. And I pray this morning that you would draw all our hearts together and that we would focus our minds and our hearts upon your word. May all things be said to glorify the name of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. I've basically broken down this passage, for those of you taking notes, into four sections. First of all, for the one who is wise. Second point, who is unwise. What true wisdom is marked by. And the results of that wisdom. First of all, who is wise. It says in verse 13, who is wise in understanding. James is making a personal appeal Excuse me, James is making a personal appeal aimed at the conscience of his readers. This question does not imply that none are wise, but he is exhorting them to self-examination, particularly those who rashly assume that they possess wisdom. This is the only time in the New Testament that these words, wise and understanding, are used together. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is used in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 13. And they're there used together to describe the needed qualifications for judges in Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6, and Hosea chapter 14 and verse 9, they are used together as desired qualities in all of God's people. This word wise can be defined as skills in deciding practical issues of conduct derived from a personal knowledge of God. Back in James chapter 1 and verse 5 it says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is never ascribed to anyone except God or good men, except in the ironic sense. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Wisdom is not a human acquisition. It is something that is given by God. Second word that is given here is understanding. And that word in the Greek is translated knowing. I think it's translated in the King James as being endued with knowledge. It's that which we can learn from others and put into practice. It's taking what we have received from others and spreading it around to those who we can affect. One who, it's one who has knowledge as an expert or specialist able to apply his fuller knowledge to practical situation. James's exhortation is directed to all believers but especially to those who pride themselves on their superior understanding. The second part of the verse says, 
Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. James once again is calling his readers to give evidence of the Christian profession in their lives. There's an Eastern proverb that goes like this. A gold vessel does not sound. A brass one does. And in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 14, it says, Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. When one speaks of his or her own wisdom or an understanding, it is sure knowledge, it is a sure sign that they have very little of either. Proof must not be given by a clever argument, but it must be manifested by the quality of one's life. But did James expect such a man to identify himself or to be identified by others? Well, use of the Greek verb for let him show introduces the idea meaning to exhibit or to bring to light, to display. Even the noun used for behavior, which also can be translated life or conduct, comes with the idea of action in movement. His conduct demonstrates his possession of the necessary practical insight and understanding of daily life. Quality of his life is demonstrated in his meekness. So first of all, under what wisdom is or who is wise, the first point you can say under it, he's someone He'll demonstrate it in his good behavior. And secondly, he will demonstrate that good behavior done in meekness. His works and his words are the, excuse me, his works and not his words are the litmus test of his wisdom. There's an external evidence of God's transforming power that is working within. True wisdom is like faith, which James dealt with in chapter 2, is vital and it is a practical quality. The nature of this wisdom brings forth a twofold idea. It's that of doing good works, but their good works being characterized by humility. In my study this week, I came across the story of a young Chinese girl living in, in her village. In her village, there lived a Christian missionary. And each day, this girl used to observe the missionary, and he would go from home to home that was marked by illness, death, sorrow. But she never heard the missionary speak in public. Well, one day this young girl, she went to another village and she followed some girls about her own age into a mission school of all things. And there she listened to a teacher teach the, teach the other little girls about a man whom children would flock to. One of the other girls asked this visitor if she knew who the man was. Well, her response was, well, of course, he's the missionary who lives in my village. And so, this girl, she'd never heard the name of Christ until that day, but yet she saw the beauty of the Christian life manifested in the life of this missionary. Verse 14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So this would go under our second point as who is unwise. In verses 14 through 16, James is pointing to what it looks like and what is the result when meekness of wisdom is lacking in an assembly of believers? The picture is of a form of wisdom that's manifested in a spirit of jealousy and rivalry. It's evidence of a false kind of wisdom, and it is confirmed by the results that follow. The first word in verse 14 points to James going in a contrasting direction from the kind of character that's just been described in verse 13. In this verse, the, the conditional form, if you have, while it appears to soften the statement 
of the current condition, it nonetheless assumes the reality of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in this assembly. Even the Greek verb for have may imply that such a situation was not only present, but that it may even have been encouraged. That word jealousy could better be translated zeal. And the word zeal can have either a positive or a negative connotation. In its root, the, verb is, the word is taken from the Greek. It means to boil or to bubble up. Zeal is something within us that puts a fire under your actions. From time to time, it is necessary that we ask ourselves, what is the, fi what is the fire that is motivating your actions? What is behind your zeal? This word has positive connotations in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 2. There Paul writes, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. It predominantly takes on negative connotations in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, in verse 13 it says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in strife and jealousy. And in this verse in James, it is only amplified by the presence of the use of the word bitter. So that's pikron in the Greek. So if you want to ask each other later on today, if you're pikron, you can. Zeal that embitters can rightly be called jealousy. Paul, prior to his conversion, was so extremely zealous over his Pharisaic brand of Judaism that he sought a service to God to persecute and to imprison members of the early church. It was for 25 years that King Olaf, 11th century king of Norway, he was a merciless foe of paganism. He was the scourge and terror of his own people, maiming bodies, burning homes, and plundering property. He enrolled rogues, thieves, and every kind of scum of the earth into his army, but he required only one condition, that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. With white crosses painted on their shields and helmets, they fought to the battle cry, Forward, Christian men! Cross men! He justified his barbaric atrocities, saying, I had God's honor to defend. Does our fire for God, does it warm others, or does it burn them? If it burns others, then it may burn us. The word selfish ambition can also be translated rivalry or faction. Prior to the New Testament times, this word was only known to occur in the writings of Aristotle. It was used to denote the self-seeking pursuit of a political office by unfair means. This word is also translated from the Greek word meaning a hireling, one who works for cause, one who works for cause just for payment. I remember when I was in the Navy, I had the opportunity on six occasions to go to Japan. And at Yakuska Naval Base in Japan, there was always only one aircraft carrier was there. It was always really, really old. And I think both of them have been decommissioned right now. And every time we used to go outside the gates into town, whenever the carrier was in port, there would be a line of anywhere between 20 or 100 protesters out there. And what they were doing was protesting nuclear power being used on a base. The funny thing is, is that those carriers weren't, de weren't even nuclear-powered. They were diesel-powered, so I don't know, even know what they were protesting about. The submarines were nuclear-powered, but they had no knowledge of those things. Okay. But anyways, when I would return to Hawaii, my pastor, who had previously been a missionary in Yokosuka, Japan, he brought this up to me one day. And you know what he told me that those protesters were? 
that they were students. They weren't there protesting anything. They were there because someone hired them to stand out there and shout all kinds of, well, I don't know what they were shouting because they shouted it in Japanese, but they were there, <laughs> but they were just there to promote a cause that they were being paid for. It's the thought of one who for personal advantage seeks to promote a cause in an unethical manner. And showing a willingness to use unworthy or divisive means to promote one's views or interests. This is quite a display to be given for a group of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. James is writing to a church of believers. But the thing is, James is not speaking in external terms. He's talking about the heart. In Jewish thinking, the heart was the source of all moral action. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And it says, Do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. James is censoring their wicked heart with a twofold rebuke. This verb is in the sense that it is translated, means to boast, to exult over. It's one who gloats over another on the basis of some assumed superiority. It finally says to lie against the truth. What James is doing here is he's bringing to full light the seriousness of their guilt. By their heart attitude, they were in essence refuting the truth of the gospel that they claimed to accept. And in verse 15 it says, This wisdom is not that which comes from, down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. In the words, in the words, this wisdom, James is summarizing the picture that's just been given in verse 14. It is a wisdom that is devoid of meekness, but produces jealousy, selfish ambition, and bitter conflict. This may claim to be wisdom, but it's not the kind that's the perfect gift that comes down from the Father of Lights, as said in James chapter 1 and verse 17. First of all, James calls it earthly. It takes on the idea of being solely of this world. It's transitory, weak, and imperfect, and it is limited to this finite life. In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 and chapter 2, Paul makes a clear distinction between what is the wisdom of this world, talking about them in chapter 1 and verse 20, and in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I won't read those right now. It talks about the wisdom of God in chapter 1, verse 24, and in chapter 2, verse 7. Secondly, he calls it sensual. This is translated pertaining to the life of the soul relating to the natural world, relating in the natural world. And whatever belongs to it in its direct contrast to the world of the supernatural. The word sensual is not being used in reference to human lust, but to what is essentially human in nature as opposed to being spiritual. It pertains to the part of mankind where human feelings and reason reign supreme. A wisdom that springs from mental and emotional impulses of man's fallen condition. This word in the Greek, in the Greek is translated sukike. Its form, it's from other words, the other forms of this words we use in English. From this we get the words psychic, psychiatry, and psychology. Lastly, James calls this kind of wisdom demonic. It's also been translated devilish, demon-like. It's translated literally as demoniacal. This is wisdom that proceeds from an evil spirit being either demonic in nature or in origin. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Behind this wisdom marked by jealousy, rivalry, and boasting, James detects the work of demons seeking to corrupt the harmony and life of the body of Christ. Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. What James is doing here is he is showing his justification for his strong condemnation of this form of wisdom by describing the fruit that it manifests and how selfishness and bitter zeal will inevitably lead to disorder in every evil deed. Disorder speaks of a restless and unsettled state. Uh, and that's, this word is used twice by James in a different form. In chapter 1, in verse 8, he speaks of the double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. And in chapter 3, in verse 8, speaking of the tongue, he says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in chapter 14 and verse 33, when he was rebuking the Corinthians for their disorderly use of the spiritual gifts, said, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Confusion and disorder will ultimately break out in any church where leadership is more interested in pursuing their own ambitions instead of the church as a whole. And every evil thing. Evil can be translated trivial or worthless. Where the heart of a group of believers is wrong, it's likely that you'll find an unlimited variety of sins there also. In this next part, true wisdom will be marked by, in verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. What James is doing here is he is now transitioning to that wisdom from above and that what it consists of is first and foremost is that it's pure. It's undefiled and free from all vices. I remember when I first got stationed in Hawaii, my first commanding officer was a guy named Bobby Lynn Nicholson. We used to call him BL. And previous to coming there, Bobby Lynn had a reputation for taking away money. There's something called non-judicial punishment where they take a stripe or they take your pay away for the while, for, uh, yeah, for about two, three months. And basically, he was a fair man. He was very hard, but he was a very fair man. But he had one major thing as, as a part of his policy. And I remember having to sit down with him. You, when you come to a new command, you always have to have a sit down with the captain for about 10, 15 minutes. And it was, it was pretty petrifying being in front of this guy. And what he would always say is that if you make a mistake, if your heart is pure, there will be mercy. But if you try to get around it, if you try to lie about it, if you try to cover something up, then, I gonna, then I'm going to come down on you hard. And so, and this is what they're speaking of here. It's sensitive to pollution of any kind, denoting to moral blamelessness like the chastity of a virgin bride. It's incapable of producing anything evil. As mentioned first, this, this attribute of true wisdom is mentioned first with its regard to importance. Second of all, true wisdom is peaceable. James continues to be consistent with the line of thought that he has taken throughout the entire passage. Someone who is peaceable is never one to involve himself 
much less start any kind of quarrel or cause dissension. Peace is a fruit of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 3, in verse 17, speaks concerning wisdom. It says, her ways are pleasant, her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. This idea is beautifully expressed in the prayer of peace written by St. Francis of Assisi. <clears throat> it reads, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Next, he calls it gentle. This word gentle takes with the idea of being considerate, forbearing, courteous, or kindly. It carries with it the idea of respect for the feelings of others. It's a willingness to waive all malice and severity in dealing with others. Next, reasonable. This word occurs only here in the New Testament, and it can be translated as easily entreated. It refers to one who is teachable, someone who has a willingness to learn from others. He is ready to cooperate when a better way is shown and is directly contrasted from being stubborn and unyielding. Next, he says it's full of mercy and good fruits. This is the only double characteristic that's listed. It's diametrically opposed from every evil deed, as mentioned in verse 16. Mercy is more than a feeling of pity. It is an attitude of compassion toward those in distress, leading to practical assistance. The adjective full underlines the fact that this heavenly wisdom is characterized by an abundance of mercy. Such a life will be filled with good fruits. Good indicates the beneficial nature that such a wisdom contains. Fruits being in the plural indicates that there is a variety. Many acts of practical mercy will be manifested in a rich harvest of good works, which are these fruits. Next it says that it's unwavering. This is taken from the verb to divide. What this word is, it's basically what's called a coin word. <clears throat> what you do, you take a word and you place an A, or in the Greek you place an alpha in front of it, and the word suddenly takes on a negative connotation. So when you put an alpha in front of it, this word is translated literally undivided. also means without discord, division. This kind of wisdom is consistent in its actions. It's not taking one position in one set of circumstances and another in another set. What I could say about being unwavering, it's kind of like seeing the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. With a thermostat, you can take this thermostat during any time of year and you can, you can set it at the temperature that you want it to be set at. And no matter how, well, if the thing's working, no matter how cold or how warm it gets, you can always keep the thermostat set. You can always keep the room set at the temperature in which you want it. We say, in other words, is don't be like a thermometer. All a thermometer does is respond to the temperature that's going on around it. Also translated, without variance, 
without uncertainty, free from vacillation or straightforward. And lastly, it says that this is without hypocrisy, literally translated unhypocritical. The word hypocrisy is an exact translation from the Greek. A hypocrite was one who in the ancient Greek theaters was one who played the part of an actor. They wore, they wore masks. I don't know if you remember, you'd see like the masks with a smile, that means they were doing a comedy. And if they had like a little frown on it, that means that the play was a tragedy. If anybody still remembers Three Stooges? Okay. But anyways, this wisdom is free from all pretense. It need not wear a mask because it has nothing to hide. It is genuine and sincere. A hypocrite is one who acts differently from what he really is. And I read in my studies this week that Charles Spurgeon had an illustration for what he used for what hypocrisy is. He would speak of a friend of his who had an apple orchard. And a friend would come and visit him at his apple, at his apple garden, at his apple orchard. And he would always say, come over to... Come over to my garden and try some of the apples that I'm growing here. And his friends would always say, no, thank you, perhaps another time. And he says, no, seriously, I really would like you to try. He's like, no, thank you. Then one day he finally confronted him on this. He says, you probably think that my apples are no good. That's probably why you won't try them. He says, well, as a matter of fact, one day when I was walking home, I picked up one of the apples that fell along the other side of the fence and I tried them. And they were the bitterest, they were the sourest things that I ever tasted in my life. And the uh, grower of the garden said, oh, oh, that makes sense. The reason why they taste like that is because the local neighborhood kids would come before and steal my apples. So I drove 50 miles away and so all the olive trees along the fringes of the orchard are trees that were grown with sour apples to prevent people from stealing. So this is the picture that was trying to, trying to give of hypocrisy. It's one that's maybe sour on the outside but is really sweet on the inside or vice versa. In verse 18, the results of that wisdom says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The results are one, they're seeds of righteousness. James is not giving a further description of true wisdom, but is completing the picture as to its results. It says, The fruit of righteousness, that is the fruit that righteousness produces it contains in itself a seed that when planted produces a harvest of a similar kind. It says that it's sown in peace. This verse reads a little bit unusually because we normally think of the idea of sowing or of planting a seed. And here it says that we're sowing or planting fruit. What this is implying is the anticipation of the harvest to come once the seed has been sown. And finally it says, by those who make peace. The fruit of righteousness will not only be sown by the peacemakers, but the peacemakers will also reap the benefits of their labor. And so I just want to close with this. Just remember that the degree to which you make known, excuse me, the degree to which you make it known, your wisdom, excuse me, rests upon the testimony of the life that you live most consistently. The Word of God has given us instruction that we might live by the principles of godly wisdom. Remember that wisdom is available to all who are children of God. I just want to repeat chapter 1 and verse 5 of James. It says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Let's stand together so we can pray.
Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Lord, I just pray that we would take these things concerning wisdom, that we would apply them to our lives. Lord, I thank you that you alone are wise and that you are the only wise God and that you have imparted a measure of wisdom to us. I pray that you would go about us this day and grant us your peace. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.